0: In the last two decades, over 7,000 American soldiers have lost their lives on the battlefield. Yet in that same time period, we've lost over 100,000 to veteran suicide. And hundreds of thousands more of our brave warriors and their families continue to suffer every single day from the mental scars of war, otherwise known as combat-related post-traumatic stress or combat PTSD. Enough is enough. We're doing something about it. Our 501c3 nonprofit, Operation Save Our Soldiers, is helping to change the lives of our brave men and women struggling with combat PTSD with our direct sponsorship of an exclusive warrior retreat and a revolutionary new therapy that's literally putting an end to their symptoms and suffering in as little as just one, two-hour session without drugs or the old-school talk therapy pushed by the VA. The results are instant and permanent, but we need your help. Soldiers pay nothing for the solutions they receive at these warrior retreats, which means from time to time we have to ask for assistance to help sponsor their travel and attendance. With as little as just a $5 donation right now, you can help change the life of one of our brave soldiers and help them finally win the battle against combat PTSD once and for all. 100% of your tax-deductible donation goes straight to sponsoring a veteran's attendance so you'll know your gift will directly impact their life and get them the help that they need. Many talk about supporting our troops. Today I'm asking you to do something about it. Please help sponsor a soldier today by going to www.operationsaveoursoldiers.org.
1: Hello, Warriors, and welcome to Warrior Life Podcast number 396. This is Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson this week, and today I'm sitting in for Jeff because I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you about the time I stabbed myself and what I learned from that experience. As it turns out, there are a few survival lessons that you can learn from stabbing yourself beyond, hey, don't do that. And those lessons are things that you can apply to your own situation, especially if you ever find yourself doing something that results in an injury or a mishap. All right. Are you ready? Then let's talk not stabbing yourself. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. Welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is the Warrior Life Podcast. All right, we're back. This is Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson. I am an old man, but that was not always the case. And when I was a young man, around uh, 20 years old or so, I uh, I was a college student living alone in a dorm room uh, that dorm room had just been recently vacated by my former roommate who had moved off campus. We were friends. Uh, he just, for whatever reason, decided he wanted to live off campus and not in in uh, dorm housing. So uh, he was visiting me while I was getting ready to pack up my room. It was towards the end of the year. It was spring. Um, it was spring. Uh, college closed down I think in early May back then Uh, and so this was probably in uh, April or maybe even very early May and I was packing up my stuff getting the room ready so I could leave and not live there anymore because I was going to go home for the summer and then move into a different dorm uh, in you know in the following season that's how things work there you move to different housing each year and what I had this was a very old building and there were sprinkler pipes running from the one side of the upper part of the room to another side of the upper part of the room. Now, I don't know if you know anything about college students, but college students are, let me back up. There is an old joke about if you give and you know place your favorite branch of the service here, like let's say Marines, give a Marine two bowling balls and leave them alone in a room under night, uh, overnight. And in the morning, one of the bowling balls will be broken and the other one will be pregnant. Well, you can reliably count on college students to do the exact same thing. They break everything that they're not having sex with. College students are notorious for being incredibly destructive. So, why this building had exposed sprinkler pipes in it? I don't know why that was a lot. It's a very old building. Actually, the building had a lot of history behind it. Uh, and there was a there was a dining hall in the basement of that building that was preferred by The kids who considered themselves the cool kids on campus, because it wasn't a brightly lighted, modern, clean dining hall like we had across campus. It was a dark and dingy dining hall, uh, kind of of the dining hall equivalent of a dive bar. So anyway, I lived in this building for a year, and uh, the first semester I had a roommate, then he moved out, and the second semester I had the coveted single, my own room, all to myself. So I fully expanded to take over the whole room, and it was pretty awesome and hanging from one of those exposed sprinkler pipes, I had a marker board, and I had, you know, I used twine or something to suspend the marker board so that it was over my desk, and it was actually a pretty good setup in terms of staying organized. And in my desk, and I I do mean in the desk, shoved into the surface of the desk, I had a double-edged dagger, kind of like a Gerber Mark I copy. Back then, copies of that particular knife were very common. I think this one came from Smoky Mountain Knife Works. And that desk, uh, that, that uh, knife, rather, was shoved in the desk. It was a letter opener, and I used to stab it into the desk when I wasn't using it because college student. And I went, I wanted to cut the twine that was holding the whiteboard up on my desk. This was high enough that I actually had to get up on the desk to reach the top and you know reach the sprinkler pipe. So I'm standing on the desk my I have a friend my friend Bob who was my former roommate uh, had was visiting and he was standing there talking to me about something and I'm talking with him while I'm working I reach down I grab the letter opener out of the surface of the desk and I go to stab the the string you know a very macho stabbing move I'm gonna stab that string and uh, the marker board will come down and so I'm holding the marker board in one hand this you can see where this is leading I'm holding the marker board with my left hand and with my right hand I have a knife in a sort of a reverse grip and I go to cut the string and I hear thump which is not what you want to hear. So I look down and I have stabbed the tip of that dagger into the inside of my left arm. and. Let me tell you, there is this moment of zen that occurs when you've just stabbed a double-edged dagger into your own body. I remember thinking to myself vividly, Leave it in or pull it out. Leave it in or pull it out. Well, I can't walk around like this. So I pulled the knife out of my arm and immediately blood started to ooze down my arm like there was no tomorrow. I remember feeling suddenly woozy, from the sudden loss of blood from the hole in my arm. Now, that may have been the first of my mistakes. There's a there's a term, I believe the term is tamponade, when when you have been stabbed with something, I think the going medical conventional advice is leave it alone. Don't pull it out. Let a medical professional evaluate whether or not to pull that knife from your body. Um and the, this brings me to, there are five survival lessons that I learned and internalized from a very early age, from the age of 20, as it turns out, when I stabbed myself with a knife in college. And uh, number one in, in the lessons that I learned was don't panic, because I proceeded immediately to panic. As the blood was oozing down my arm and forming a puddle on the floor. I I didn't even notice the puddle until I came back home later because, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I didn't die. Um, When I came back home later, I saw the puddle and was like, oh, that's what a puddle of coagulated blood looks like. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a puddle of your own blood on the floor, but it's uh, the first time you encounter it. It's kind of a surprise. So fortunately for me, while I was panicking, my friend Bob was actually on what we called the rescue squad back then. They were students who had... Uh, EMT training, and um, there was a there was a campus, there was a security group that were literally just college students in blue windbreakers with flashlights, uh, and then there were the the campus rescue squad, which were students who had EMT training. I, I feel like today they probably have actual armed police on campus or adjacent to it. I know that at the college across the street from our university, they did have an actual police force, um, but back then uh, I don't know maybe it was a little more quaint. This was the early nineties, so. <laughs> I uh, I remember looking at my friend Bob, who was an EMT, and angrily demanding, "Bob, what do I do? You're an EMT, Bob. What do I do?" And I was I was you know freaking out, just completely losing my mind. And I will always remember Bob's response. Bob looked at me and he said, "First of all, shut up." Then he grabbed a wad of Kleenex from the Kleenex box sitting on the desk, wrapped it around my arm where it was bleeding. He said to me, "Hold here." So now I've got a death grip with my right hand on my left arm with this Kleenex over the the hole in my arm, soaking up the blood. (laughs) Which brings me to the second lesson that I learned. Well, let me finish the first lesson. Don't panic. While I was panicking, Bob wasn't. If you see someone get injured, you can be Bob. You can be the guy who keeps a cool head while someone else uh, is freaking out. If you get injured and you can maintain your cool and not panic, that's good for you and you can make much better decisions. I know it seems very obvious, but you would be surprised how easy it is to come apart under pressure, to just absolutely freak out. And panic does not solve problems. You have to be calm in order to solve an emergency. And this extends to situations beyond you stabbing yourself. I um, Quite a few years ago, I worked an office job, and I worked late into the evening one night because I had something I needed to finish. It's funny how these things, you never remember the work itself. It's never as important as you think it is. I get in my car and I go to leave, but it is now a whiteout blizzard, and I didn't realize how bad the weather was getting. I have not real far to go, but I had to travel some highways and stuff. So I get out of the work parking lot and I suddenly realize that not only can I not see the road, I can't see where the road starts and stops, but I can't see anything else. I can't see to back up, I have no way to know if it's safe to pull over because there's ditches on either side of the road. And I knew a moment of complete and total panic where I didn't know what to do. I was freaking out, I was losing my mind. And that little voice that I've had in my head ever since this happened when I was in college said, you know what's not going to solve this problem? is panicking about it. What can you do to fix this? And it occurred to me that I had a GPS. And even though I couldn't see where I really was, the GPS could tell me what road I was on. So I put the GPS on the dash. I used to keep it in the center console so it wouldn't get stolen. I set it up. I put it on the dash. I told it where I wanted to go, namely home. And then I flew by instrument, essentially, in my car in a blizzard, just hoping I wasn't going to, you know, just kind of charting the center of the white expanse, hoping I didn't find a ditch on either side, using the GPS to tell me where I was. Because while I could kind of see that I was in the middle of the road, I couldn't see intersections, I couldn't see anything else. Occasionally I would see the lights from another car and I could avoid them. But I was completely lost until I realized you have the ability to operate via instrument. And I got home using that method. Uh, I remember the feeling of panic and then the sudden calm of, wait, you can solve this. So don't panic. Now, number two, uh, direct pressure, uh, or more, more broadly, first aid. The second lesson is one of first aid. I was panicking. I knew that direct pressure is what you do when you get cut or stabbed. Uh, I just needed to be reminded of that. But what if it was some other kind of injury? Uh, For example, how do I know that if you stab yourself with something, you should leave it there and not go yanking it out? Well, that's something you learn from reading medical information. Uh, You need basic first aid information. You need to get some training in CPR, uh, even just a book that you keep in your bug out bag on basic uh, first aid procedures there are so many myths and so much misinformation out there that you and I have picked up from television and movies. It would do you wise to do some research about this stuff. For example, you know, on TV, uh, you just use fire to cauterize a wound and you're fine, right? Well, no, come, come to find out if you use fire to treat a, a cut, you could end up doing more damage. Um, You know, you shouldn't just go all Rambo and try to use the powder from your AK-47 cartridge to burn the hole through your wounds so you stop bleeding. Like, I I just, I can't stress enough that playing around with fire like that probably not going to improve the situation. So it's worth doing some research. It's worth learning first aid procedures uh, for basic stuff, not only for yourself, but for other people when they get hurt. Again, you can be Bob. You can be my friend who told me what to do. So when we left our story, I was flipping out and I had a death grip on my arm because I was convinced I was gonna bleed to death. Bob, meanwhile, was like, come on, we're leaving. I said, where are we going? He's like, to the health center, you moron. (laughs) Another thing that I couldn't think to do because I was freaking out. But Bob, who kept his head about him, knew, all right, I'm going to apply direct pressure to this person's wound and then get him to medical assistance. When you're hurt, you're often not polite, and that's why I was being so uh, uh, impolite to Bob and the people around me. Bob, to his credit, just kind of went with it because he knew that people behave this way when they're hurt. I I can remember once I had the worst pain I've ever felt before. I had kidney stones. I'm not talking about passing the kidney stones. I'm talking about... When you, I don't know if you've ever experienced kidney stones for yourself, but for me, it started out as lower back pain. And I thought, did I hurt my back? Did I sleep wrong? Because when you're old, you can just hurt yourself in your sleep. Um, But no, the pain got more and more intense to the point where I was like, something's wrong. My, my gallbladder is going to explode. I was in so much pain that I couldn't even drive myself to the hospital. I called a friend and was like, "I, I don't know what to do. I hurt so much. I need help. So I was sitting on the front step of my house kind of rocking back and forth in pain when my friend Patrick pulled up and put me in his car and took me to the hospital. I I don't know why I didn't call 911. I guess I I didn't want to incur the expense or maybe I wasn't thinking clearly. But anyway, while I was at the hospital, I was in so much pain that I was rude to everyone. And, And nurses are the most wonderful people in the world because they're used to this and just kind of roll with it. But uh, I was so angry that they were asking me questions and then asking me the same questions again while filling out various forms that I just was unable to communicate. My situation improved a lot when the pain backed off a little bit and I was able to start communicating politely. I cannot stress enough that quiet, calm persistence in how you deal with people is going to get you a lot farther with everyone than if you're angrily snapping orders or barking at them or refusing to talk to them. People respond in kind to that kind of hostility. They will just assume that you have an attitude problem. Their first thought is not, he's in pain, he doesn't understand. Their first thought is, that guy's a jerk, I'm not going to help him. So if, no matter how bad you hurt, no matter how much pain you're in, no matter how freaked out you are that you've injured yourself or that you've been injured, in a survival situation, be polite whenever possible. So um, that brings me to communication. The more you can communicate when you've been hurt the more likely you are to survive. Now in my case, here I am with a death grip on my right arm. I'm being led to the health center by my, my trusty friend Bob, who really helped me out that day. And I stopped and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be late for my date. I had what was for me a very important date that evening. I was going to be meeting a lovely young lady for dinner and I did not want to blow that opportunity. So through the haze of, I think I'm bleeding to death, we stopped at a blue light phone. My, my campus, this was before the days of wireless phones. I mean, they existed, but no students had them. So you had a phone in your room and you had an answering machine to catch your messages when you weren't home. Uh, everyone had an answering machine. And at some point during my college tenure, they installed these blue light emergency phones. The phones only communicated internally on the campus's network. So I forget now exactly how it worked, but it was a three or four digit number you could use to call anybody's room inside the system. There were external numbers outside, but inside the system you could call any room on the campus with a, a few digits. These blue light phones were connected to that same network and they were basically just a post with a speaker and a keypad on them and a blue light. Uh, and it was so that you could summon help from security if you were you know, not safe. I don't know if they were ever used for that purpose. I know that we as students constantly use them just to talk to each other because, hey, there's a free phone. And it wasn't a pay phone. So I stopped and I, I remember using one of the blue light emergency phones to call my my date and say, I have stabbed myself. I'm going to be a little late. <laughs> and then I resumed to freaking out. It, I guess you knew where my priorities were even then. Uh. The more you can keep people informed, though, and more broadly, whenever you do anything risky, like if you're hurt, you need to be able to communicate to other people what's wrong with you to the extent that you can. Things you say could be the clues that help people to save your life if you're very badly injured. If you're like, oh, I have this shooting pain in my abdomen, that might be the clue that somebody needs to fix you, you know, so that Dr. House can go, I don't know, did you check his butt for toothpicks and and figure out the mystery thing that's killing you? Um, every episode of Dr. House is, is like that. But if you can communicate, you might be able to get rescue when you otherwise wouldn't. And here I'm thinking of the story of Aaron Ralston, the guy on, who, uh, on whose life that movie 127 Hours is based. Aaron Ralston, he goes, he goes rock climbing. He has an accident. His arm gets pinned and crushed by a rock. He realizes no one knows where he is and no one's coming to save him. So he eventually has to cut off his own arm with like a cheap multi-tool in order to escape and get to safety. Well, uh, if you communicate like, hey, I'm going to go rock climbing and I'm gonna be in this area. And if you don't hear from me by nine o'clock, could you please send somebody to rescue me? That kind of communication could really save your butt. Um, So communicate if you're hurt, tell people what's going on with you. If you're gonna do something risky or dangerous, even if you're just going hiking, don't forget, it's not always about injury. Sometimes it's about getting kidnapped or or robbed and mugged or beat up. You know, just communicate with other people. It's an important lesson. Before and after you do anything risky, anything out of your ordinary routine, make sure people know. And if you do get hurt, make sure you communicate to other people what's going on with you. In my case, some of that communication uh, got a little funny. And by that, I mean specifically that... Uh, I walk into to the health center, and these two nice ladies, who I guess were nurses or medical professionals of some kind, they look at me and they go, uh, uh, what, what, "What do you got going on there, son?" And, and I, I think Bob probably explained that uh, he, you know, in medical terminology, that I had stabbed myself in the arm. So. Now I'm standing in front of her. I've got my right arm clamped over my left inside forearm. The wrong place to get stabbed because the whole time I was very aware that I don't know if I've gotten near one of the veins, you know, running on the inside of your arm. That's a bad place to get stabbed. Um, So she looks at me and she puts her hand gently on my hand and she says, when I go to pull your hand away from here, is that going to squirt out? And I remember being outraged. I'm like, squirt out? Squirt out it wasn't squirting when I came in here and that was not a re- reasonable response but that's that is what I said to her and then I remember also she's like now this blade that you stabbed yourself with w- was it rusty <laughs> and and then I really got her right. I' said, certainly not <laughs> I, what 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 do you take me for I do not have rusty knives lying around <laughs> and they're just trying to do their job and here I am being ridiculous um, so eventually, uh, when They took it away, took my hand away, and, and uh, the bleeding had mostly stopped. Uh, it wasn't as bad as I had feared. There was a, a lot of blood. Uh, but uh, they looked at me and, and they said, well, there's not really, the, the nature of the wound is such that there's no real point in putting a stitch in there. We're going to give you this, it was just a butterfly bandage to hold it together, and, and uh, we're going to put that on there, and then over that we're going to put a larger bandage. And I remember that larger bandage did get quite a bit of blood on it, because I was still leaking for a while. So I had like this big round um, you know, badge of honor around my arm for a while uh, to clamp everything down. But uh, there was, I didn't have to go to the doctor. I didn't have to go to any kind of a hospital. And that was the extent of the medical care I received. I think they probably used an antibiotic or something on it. But uh, really, that's all it took. I have the scar to this very day. This was uh, 30 years ago. And I still can see the scar. I tried to take a photo of it and I couldn't get it to show up on camera because you know the lighting is such that I couldn't the scar is faint, but it's there. And it is the it's about a quarter of an inch long, and it represents how deep the tip of that dagger went into my arm. So I learned a valuable lesson, five valuable lessons. And the fifth of those valuable lessons uh, to review. Number one was don't panic, and that goes for every situation. If you can be the person who is calm when someone else gets hurt, so much the better. Uh, number two was first aid, or in my case, direct pressure. You should get first aid training. If this happens, if you get hurt, if someone else around you gets hurt, you want to have first aid training. Number three, surprisingly, was be polite. If you are in an emergency emergency situation, your ability to be polite and calm and persistent will get you much farther with other people from whom you are asking things, of whom you are asking things, than any other kind of, you know, trying to be a tough guy, trying to be bombastic, trying to bark orders. No, be polite, be persistent, be calm. Number four was communicate. Make sure that the people around you know what's going on with you, know where you're going, know what's happening with you, whether you're injured or you're just going someplace where the possibility exists that you could be injured. And finally, number five, Revise your protocols. Uh, Stabbing myself caused me to really stop and reevaluate how I handle knives. I was, as a a young man, I was super casual. You know, young people, they are indestructible in their minds, I don't think anything bad can happen to them. And I look back and yeah, I was super casual about how I handled knives. I became really uptight about how I did everything with a sharp blade after that because my body remembered, hey man, you do this wrong, we end up stabbing ourselves. So that served me well uh, for many, many years to come. You know, just understanding, having respect for something that could injure me. If you get hurt, uh, especially if you are the reason you got hurt, always reevaluate your protocols and prioritize how to do them better. Make it a, make it a system, systematize it. Say every time I, for instance, use a sharp blade, I want the cutting edge and the point to be moving away from my body. That's like safety rule number one of knives. And I still managed to screw that up. So make sure that you evaluate what happened if you get hurt and change your protocols, change your habitual ways of doing things so that it can't happen again. Uh, These five lessons, they seem simple. They seem like common sense. But as they say, common sense is not common. And I have uh, lived with these ever since. For the last 30 years since I hurt myself, uh, I went from being a young man to a much wiser, uh, much fatter, much less flexible man. (laughs) But I'm alive to have joints that hurt (laughs) because I followed uh, these rules that I learned, many of which came about because I stabbed myself in the arm. All right, that's going to about do it. I have been Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson. Please be careful when playing with anything that has sharp edges. And until next time, prepare, train, and survive. Train, survive.